First of all, let me address the elephant in the room. I did not serve in the military, all right? Um, I wear this jacket as a reminder. When, I, when my family, when we moved to Northeast Oklahoma City, the family that we bought the house from, uh, the Dixon, Dixon family, they were incredible pillars of the community. Um, Mr. Dixon, he served in Vietnam. Miss Dixon uh, shepherded the family well, and they were faithful members of the community. But when they passed away and left the home to their children, the kids actually left this in the closet. And so I wear this as a reminder, one, that I so value and respect all those who put their lives on the line to keep us safe. I value you and I respect you. And so I wear this as a reminder that the only reason we get to be here in safety is because there's courageous people like you. But I also wear this as a reminder that I'm standing on the shoulders of others who have gone before me. And I never want to forget that. I want to leave a legacy, a legacy for being a faithful steward of the gospel. And I don't want that to be left in the closet. And so I wear this as a reminder. And as I preach today, what I hope you leave with is a fire in your belly to go faithfully and courageously into our city and stand tall for Jesus. Let's stand together as we read the word together. We'll be in Revelations chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Revelations chapter 2, starting in verse 12. The words will be on the screen, and it reads as such. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among, among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Verse 15. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone so no, so no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of God. Lord, we just thank you so much that we are here and we are in your presence already. We're not waiting for something special. We're not waiting for something dynamic. You're already here. So, Lord... I pray right now <clears throat> that you would give me the strength to preach the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. And I pray that you give ears to hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The date is April 22nd, 1913. 20 short, 24 short years after the land run. George Lee Cruz and Mayor Whit Grant descend into the first Lutheran church basement, merely yards from where we sit 
right now. These two distinguished elected officials are met by dozens of church parishioners and other individuals from the city, and what they're going to do can only be marked as a premeditated burial. Looming over mounds of freshly turned red clay lie a nine-foot copper sarcophagus, awaiting its slumber in the earth. But there was something strange about this funeral proceeding. For starters, the copper coffin was lowered into a 10-foot cement-lined bunker. Instead of roses and dirt being thrown into the pit, gallons of cement sealed the tomb. And 100 years later, this coffin was dug up, and we now call it the century chest. To raise funds for a new pipe organ, parishioners led primarily by women, shout out ladies, sold space in an enlarged time capsule starting at a dollar. Its contents included dozens of movie posters, postcards, letters, Native American artifacts, even technology and fashion of the day. The item that sticks out to me most from this century chest are the collection of prophecies. City leaders in the areas of business, journalism, education, and government were invited to write letters to the future leaders of Oklahoma City, speculating about what the future would look like. And what I'd like to do for you is read one of these prophecies. It was entitled, A Vision and Prophecy of Religion, written by Bishop Francis Brooke, and it reads like this. I see a vision of a clearer knowledge, also of the personality of God, that he is our father, that he is in the person of the incarnate son, our brother while yet our God, that he is our friend and fellow worker, in the things of the spirit and the mind, in the person of the Holy Ghost. I love it. Holy Ghost. I see a time when all doubt of his revealed truth as being three persons in one divine nature have passed away, both because men have forgotten all its difficulties and with the heart have accepted its comfortable truth. What Bishop Brooks' vision was for the city was that a hundred years later, the people of Oklahoma City would all set aside their challenges and difficulty and believe that there is one truth, and that truth is Jesus. Well, Brooke, I wish that was right. <laughs> a lot has happened in a hundred years. What Bishop Brooke wrote as a prophecy of warning and blessing to the city of Oklahoma the prophecy we're going to read today was written by Jesus Christ himself to the church in Pergamum. And what I want to do is bring out three points. Number one, Christ commends courage. Number two, Christ combats compromise. And number three, Christ comforts the contrite. For those who are just jumping into the series of Red Letters, 
what I'd say is please go to our resource page at frontlinechurch.com and, and listen to the previous sermon so you can get a broader context of the book of Revelation. But in summary, this is a book penned by one of Jesus' closest disciples and friends, John. He writes this is final of five books of the Bible while on house arrest, awaiting to be tried and executed for being a faithful herald of the gospel. While on death row, Jesus gives John a direct divine vision and tells him, write it down and distribute it to my church. Jesus begins, or sorry, John begins this letter by writing Revelation 2, 12. And and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. For those with a history in, in the Bible, you would immediately begin re- being reminded of the words in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. An appropriate image to have for the word of God is one of a scalpel in the hands of a professional, well-trained, world-class surgeon. A skilled surgeon, unlike me, knows the difference between a cancerous growth and a natural growth. A skilled surgeon knows what is necessary to take away the cancer while inflicting minimal harm to promote healing and restoration. And rightly, the scripture, the word of God is a scalpel of God. And it's both an expression of the love and the justice of God. The scalpel promotes health and wholeness in the the body by taking away what what should not be there. Jesus puts things right, but it may feel painful. And this love that Jesus shows with the scalpel, it coincides with his justice. There is no love without justice, or as Dr. King puts it, power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. Now, what Jesus is going to do is go on to tell uh, his church and the church in Pergamum why they're going to need this two-edged sword of God's word. Verse 13 says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Jesus is basically saying, I know where your crib is. I know where you live. And bro, good luck getting an Uber or a delivery pizza because you live in the hood. Now, this would have been shocking to the first century readers because Pergamum was known as the Washington, D.C. of Asia Minor. 
As stated before, these seven churches are located in modern-day Turkey. Pergamum was the northernmost city. It was the gateway city into, into Asia Minor. And where Ephesus was known as the economic capital, Pergamum was the cultural and religious capital. Upon entering the city, you'd be struck by the beauty of the city. You'd be in awe of the sophistication of its people. Pergamum constructed one of the world's largest, most advanced theaters known to, at, in the time. It's rumored that you could hear a performer whispering if you were sitting in the balcony. Also, the city was known for its large, actually the second largest library in the world, behind only the Grand Library in Alexandria, Egypt and it possessed over 200,000 volumes of work. This library is so valuable that it was given to Queen Cleopatra by the Roman general Mark Anthony as a wedding gift. But unfortunately, no matter the sophistication, no matter the beauty, Pergamum, like many of the other metropolitan cities in Asia Minor, if you were walking through, you would notice the plethora of pagan monuments. Looming a thousand feet above the plain stood the altar to the Greek god Zeus. Right down the hill would be the elegant temple dedicated to the goddess Athena. The city had dozens and dozens and dozens of temples and shrines and altars, but none were more distinct than the temple to Augustus. The well-developed and organized imperial cult of Caesar thrived in Pergamum. In 29 BC, Pergamum became the first city ever granted permission to erect and dedicate a temple to a living Caesar. Caesar is Lord evolved from a political declaration into a theological doctrine. The amalgamation of church and state continues to seduce the church even today. And every city Every church that is tainted by idol and ideological worship is a city where Satan's throne lives. A throne is a seat of authority. It's as if Jesus is saying, Jesus, the devil runs this town. He runs this city. A throne is also an image of comfort. I don't know what type of home you grew up in. Um, you may have grew up in a home with me where my dad had this recliner in the living room. And it was daddy's recliner. Like you can go see it now and you can see the buttocks indents right in the recliner. That was daddy's seat. When you invited someone over and they began approaching daddy's seat, you would feel the hair begin to tingle and you're just like, no. Because you know that seat is reserved. What Jesus is saying here is the devil runs this town and he looks comfortable doing it. His feet are all up on the coffee table. And nobody's doing anything about it. The question I would have today is, if Jesus was writing a letter to the church of Oklahoma City, would he say the same about our city? If he walked around for a while, would, would he be so impressed? Would he walk around Oklahoma City saying, I see your works. 
I see your renovations. You got a river walk. You got beautiful restaurants. Ooh, is, th is that a streetcar? The thunder? Would he be so impressed or would he say something more like, I know your works. You incarcerate more women than any other city. You have the third largest atheist association in the world. And quite frankly, most of you place more faith in Congress than Calvary. I know your works. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. God forbid he would say the same to us. Which brings me to my first point. In the face of evil and deception, Christ commends courage. Verse 13, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. To illustrate what courage looks like in the face of adversity, Jesus uses an example of Antipas. And before I move on to talking about Antipas, I would just like to say, ain't you glad that you serve a God that not only knows where you live, but he knows you by name? Ain't you, God that you, ain't you glad that you serve a God that is not far in distance, but is in the neighborhood and cares about what you go through? That's the God that we serve. Now back to our regularly scheduled sermon. Many, Christ, many Christian traditions say Antipas was an ordained bishop of Pergamum, and he was ordained during the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian, and Domitian persecuted the Christian church relentlessly. Tradition goes on to say that due to his outspoken denouncement against false teaching and his bold stance for Christ, Roman Emperor Nero had him boiled alive in a brazen bull-shaped altar. But when faced with death of the worst kind, Antipas did not shake, remained unmovable, and held firm to the faith that was given to him. He stood up for truth. Why? Because he had on the armor of God. Talk to me, OG Paul. Ephesians chapter six. Be strong in the Lord, in his strength and in his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as for the shoes on your feet, you don't need no J's. You don't need no Fila. Having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstance, earth circumstance, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming bullets coming at you from the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, and here goes the key words, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You need no other weapon but the word of God. Let me ask you a question. 
What is this to you? What is this to you? Is this the word of God which defines you? Is this the unfallible word of God which has been spoken from the mouth of God that defines your reality? Or are these simply words about God in which they're relevant and you get to make it fit into your situation? Have you totally built your life upon the word of God in such a way that you could say, like the Apostle Paul, to live as Christ, to die? is game. Would you die for this book? Would you die for this book? What I mean by that question isn't the letter bound and the pages and the ink, not would you die for this physical book, but would you die for the one in whom is disclosed by this book and his name is Jesus? C.S. Lewis says this, you never know how much you really believe in anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death. Are you compelled by the good news of, of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection so much that you're willing to stake your entire life that this book is true, that this book is the giver of life? Antipas and millions of other anonymous faithful witnesses have lost their life holding firm to the faith that has been given and not denying the name of Christ. And listen, friends, you will never die for something you haven't first lived for. You will never die for something that you haven't first lived for. This book is true. This book is true and it's worth giving everything for. Second, what I want you to notice is Christ combats compromise. Christ combats compromise. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. This is the only of the seven churches where Jesus looks at it and then says, I have a couple things against you. I got a few things against you. That's sort of like if you're married or if you're dating someone and you get home and the individual says, we need to talk. You know what that means. It's about to get real. Here, the compromise found in the church of Pergamum is attributed to a pair of separate yet equal false teachings, Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Who was Balaam? This is the Ernest Cliff Note version. The book of Numbers chapter 22 teaches us that the Moabite king, whose name was Balak, was scurred of a large Israelite posse traveling on his turf. And he begs a lower P pagan prophet Balaam, and he says, will you curse this posse? Balaam refuses, a donkey speaks. And Balak relents, he gives up. The Israelite posse instead camps out with the Moabites and they get comfortable. 
and they compromise. They compromise by turning in their faith and truth for the stumbling blocks of pork and poles. You'll get that on your way home. That's my PG version. Similarly, the teachings of the Nicolaitans were one of compromise. If individuals would proclaim that they're living for the name of Christ and standing on his word, but in all reality, all of their actions looked like the devil was their daddy. You see this noted by Western church father Isidore of Seville when he writes this in 636 A.D. The Nicolites are so called from Nicholas, one of the deacons of the church of Jerusalem, who along with Stephen and the others was ordained by Peter. He abandoned his wife because of her beauty so that whoever wanted might enjoy her. The practice turned into debauchery with partners being exchanged in turn. Compromise is nothing more than tolerance gone wild. Compromise. The church in Pergamum was compromising the word of God. And Christ will not put up for his bride compromising. Earlier, I asked you this question, are you willing to die for Christ? But now I have to ask an equally important question. What are you willing to allow die for Christ? What are you willing to let die for the name and the fame of Jesus Christ? What will you let go of? This question has been eating my lunch all month, tearing me up. The question is, are you willing to place your lust, the idol, the pet idol that you have in your life, are you willing to put it on the brazen altar to be consumed and go up in fire or are you gonna continue worshiping it? And when I say this word lust, for many of us, our minds go to the most fallacious of sins. Like, are you willing to give up porn? Are you willing to say, I will not murder? I hope you will. Like, you're looking at the extremes, but this question is it's getting to the nitty gritty. It's not saying, are you only able to give up the porn, but are you going to stop watching Westworld? Shameless. Are you willing? Do you worship me? Am I beautiful enough that you can give up? I almost don't want to say this because it might start a stampede to the, to the stage. Are you willing to give up Game of Thrones? I know everyone else gets to watch it. I know it's not as bad as porn. But any compromise is too much compromise. And listen, I named those shows Pastor Confession because I've seen every episode of all of them. And when I had to study this text this month, I had to look in the mirror and say, Ernest, are you willing to give up your idols? I have a journal, and inside this journal, I do the same thing every day. 
I draw the number one and then I circle it. And multiple times throughout the day, I'll, when I'm flipping my journal to look at my calendar or to look at my checklist, I look at that number one. And this is what it stands for. That one stands for, it's a challenge that I have for myself is, today, are you willing to say no to the thing that you really don't, that you really want to do, but God doesn't want you to? Today, are you willing to begin doing the thing that you really don't want to do, but God wants you to? Will you stop for his name today, Ernest? Will you start for his name today, Ernest? Will you live for the glory of God? I just challenge you to do the same thing. And the question is why? And it's because Jesus takes the holiness of his bride very seriously. Verse 16 gives us this command. Therefore, repent. If you look it up in the Greek, this, this, this word repent, it translates to stop it. And here he puts an imperative in front of it. And so you could, to add urgency, you could interpret this, stop it now. What Jesus is saying is the holiness of my bride means so much to you. And I want you to see me as enough for you that you would give up all your side pieces. Therefore, repent. If you harbor unforgiveness, go home and forgive. If you're greedy, fight for generosity. If you're hateful, fight for love. If you're the gossip, when you get to work, close your mouth if you can't say anything good. Fight for holiness. Why? Because I'm better. I'm better. And please remember, people of God, we repent from a place of love, not for love. We get to repent because God loves us. We don't repent, turn away, stop it. Fight for holiness because we want to get closer to God. Because we're condemned and outcast, we need to get back to him. Therefore, we give up the stuff. No, we give up the stuff because we love the God. Romans 2.4 says this, Do not presume on the riches and the kindness and the forbearance and the patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's his kindness that draws you to him. It's his kindness that allows you to draw a one circle it and then ask God for courage to stay committed to it. It's his kindness. But be aware, be warned. The kindness, the forbearance, and the patience of God is time sensitive. It's time sensitive. Verse 16 says this, if not, if you do not repent, if you do not give up your other lovers, if you do not turn to me, I will come to you soon. And remember, I know where you live. And war against them with the sword of my mouth. He's saying the scalpel of my love, which is meant to heal and restore you, will turn into the sword of judgment. Repent. Repent. Now, lest I wrongfully portray God as a cosmic killjoy and the Christian life like living in Texas, just simply unbearable. 
let me land the plane with this third and final point. Christ comforts the contrite. Revelations chapter 2, verse 17. Who has, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name, written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is where I like to end. For those here today who would say, I'm a Christian, I hold fast to the name of Jesus, I hold fast to the name of Jesus, and I have not denied the faith. But if I'm keeping it 100, I can't honestly say with conviction and honesty that I die for Christ. I just can't say that. Well, the good news for you is you're in good company. Neither could the Apostle Peter. If you read your Bible, Peter denied the name of Jesus three times. On top of that, he cussed out a little girl when he was confronted. You ain't that bad. But Peter received what Jesus offers to you now, a big old batch of hidden manna. What is this hidden manna? Just as Jesus fed his starving people as they wandered in the desert aimlessly, God promises that he will be with you in every dry, every desolate, every dangerous place that you go. There is no place and nothing you can do that will separate you from the love of God. No matter where you go, if you're a missionary to a overseas or if you're just going home and got to talk to that person, if you call upon the name of Jesus, he will be manna to you. He will feed you. He will sustain you and he will be your portion. That is a promise. The good news is the Father has a glorious plan for your life. Jesus is seated next to Papa and is constantly in intercession for you to have strength and to have courage. And the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, reminding you that you are loved, you are forgiven, and hear this, you are more than a conqueror. There is no sin that can take you down. There is nothing too strong for the God that is behind you. You are more than a conqueror. Others here today would say, I love Jesus. I really do, but I'm compromised. I do things that I know I shouldn't do, and I don't do the things that I know I shouldn't. Keeping it 100, I don't know if I want to stop. Every time that temptation comes, a Hamilton soundtrack pops in my head and it sounds like, Lord, show me how to say no to this. I don't know how to say no to this. This sin, it looks so helpless. And my body's saying, heck yes. <laughs> That's my edited version. The good news for you is that Jesus has a white stone waiting for you. What is this white stone? 
Back in these biblical times, uh, you were given a white stone if you were invited to a banquet from a high roller and it allowed you entrance into the party. Having a white stone is sort of like having a black card today. If you pull up to the club, you don't go to the club. Pick something else, the museum. If you go to the museum, <laughs> stick with me. <laughs> if, if you go to the museum, there's a line around the corner, around the building, and you want interest. There's a velvet rope. There's a bouncer. You pull out that black card, and you gain direct interest. You have a black card to the kingdom. Anytime you want to see the king, you just flash that black card, and you get right on in. And everything that is available in his kingdom is available to you. I thought somebody would be excited. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's okay. I don't need your golf claps. It's okay. <laughs> now, listen, this is what I tell you. If you're struggling, if you're struggling, if you're compromising, you don't know what to do. This is what I can tell you. I promise you. If you get a glimpse of the glory of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, if you get a glimpse of his might and his power and understand that it's available to you, if you peer into the a crevice of a kingdom and see all of the riches and the joy and the pleasure that's available to you, you will not stand for anyone or anything that will try to keep you trapped in the spiritual hood. You just won't put up for it. You know what your king has. You know what's available in the kingdom, and you will joyfully repent and turn to him. Finally, this is an assurance that's particularly given to those who have trusted in Jesus, renounce their sin. But I want to say this directly to those who would say, I have not found my faith and my hope in Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus wants to comfort you with something today, and that's a new name. Jesus wants to comfort you with a new name. On the cross, Jesus washed away all of our sins, every drop, every stain, every crumb. He washed it all away. And what that means is that he washed away everything that has happened to you, everything that you have done to someone else, everything that has defined you to this point and crippled you to this point has been washed away by Jesus Christ. That's for you who have placed your trust in Jesus Christ. And now, because he has given you this new name, no longer do you have to be plagued by the sins of the past. No longer do you have to be crippled by the fear of the future. You get to live presently in his kingdom and in his presence. And for you who have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this is available to you. This is available to you. Jesus wants to meet you. Jesus wants to show you his love. Jesus wants to give you everything promised to those who put his trust in him. But you have to understand, you have to do it now. There's urgency. Will you repent and allow the scalpel of God's word to lead you to repentance today? With urgency, I would say, turn to Jesus Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.